you, Alex. So the last, last two times I tried to guide this conversation, you refused uh, <laughs> to go where I wanted to. Uh, so what do you want to uh, talk about next? <laughs> well, <laughs> don't, don't say that. Now, I think you <laughs> wanted to talk about neuropathic pain, didn't you, Tom? I did, if you're happy to. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, yeah. Um, this is, I go backwards and forwards on this. Um, it's so interesting. <laughs> I'm writing it. I'm supposed. I'm not actually doing it. I should be, but I'm supposed to be writing the textbook chapter about neuropathic pain. Mm. And um, I go backwards and forwards because it's so interesting. It seems to be very different to your normal sort of nociceptive pain, um, mm. with all due sort of um, nod to the fact that they're not that's a bit of an artificial separation and all that um and sometimes i think that it, it's it's really useful sort of distinction to make and sometimes i think well it comes back to what you're saying about what does it practically change about what you're doing but i mean what what's your sort of take on the neuropathic pain thing so yeah so i, I kind of um and are in about this quite a lot really um I, I don't really know the answer um so the, there's that paper the ios paper there's now the funeral mm -hmm paper that, that talks about neuropathic pain and and you've got to fit into certain boxes that the kind of pit the history has to fit the examination has to have a sensory component to it um, and then confirmatory mri so there's certainly a group of people who fit into that nicely you know they, they they've got burning pain uh they've got numbness down the side of the, the leg and into the foot um particularly if there's injury to the the, the dorsal root ganglia uh, i think that is uh, fairly um they fit into that nicely i guess um at the other end is the patients who don't <laughs> so they they have none of those things mm -hmm. so they've got the leg component but they, they don't have the typical uh gain of function they don't have the the, the loss of sensation um so based on that funeral paper they they don't have that they wouldn't have neuropathic pain mm -hmm. um so anina uh, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. She would probably say it's maybe just not fit for purpose, and and it needs to be revised and um, and and um, and kind of reviewed, I guess, and, and you know, based on what we know. Uh, and I think that's fair enough. Um, the fly in the ointment, though, I think is this idea of neuritis, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So that epineural inflammation. So a lot of that work by Dilly and Bolf, um, when they they were experimenting on sciatic nerves in rats. Um, and they were looking to induce local inflammation and looking at the axonal transport and mechanical sensitivity of, of these nerves. And they found that um, th there was kind of discrete bunching, wasn't it, of the, these kind of channels um, within the nerve that seemed to be sensitive to stretching and, and things. But it didn't seem to be any kind of um, like fiber injury, like mm -hmm. damage to the axon yeah. itself. So yeah. I think, again, going back to the earlier point, I think it's more than plausible that there's groups of people who don't have neuropathic pain. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, and, and I would probably say that they are a subgroup of people, that they, they're more, probably more nociceptive in nature. Mm -hmm. The sheath itself has, um, has a nerve supply and then the peripheral nerves themselves also. I think a lot of this stuff, the patients who have the very strong straight leg raises and slumps. So they were kind of debating that they feel that those things were diagnostic for that, for that element of pain. And when you looked at the, the, the kind of 
scheme that, that, that I'll share with, with your listeners. Um, I would literally take radicular pain to mean of the root, so the root complex, mm-hmm. as you, you will put in your book, um, and then talk about mechanical sensitivity or neuropathic pain as qualities or particular aspects that, that we can see in our patient. So that makes sense clinically because we can we can test for them and mm-hmm. we can we can say well the, the, there's an element of this and. And uh, there's an element of that. Now, with the, the, the mixed pictures and you've got these ectopic discharges, but then you've got this information around the root as well. Fair enough. But we can at least kind of say they have a quality of this and they have a quality of that. Or they don't, you know, so it's clinically useful to maybe not see them distinct, but individual qualities. I suppose you could say mechanical sensitivity is, again, a function sign. But, but anyway, the other thing you're probably going to say, Tom, is that is, is it all semantics and what does it really change based on my previous comments? I think there's a few studies looking at gabapentinoids um, for other kind of um, neuropathic problems, so following shingles, peripheral mm. nerve injuries. I don't tend to use it in trigeminal neuralgia from, from what I understand, but after stroke and things. And I think that there is some effect there Mm-hmm. Um, but when we try to study it in sciatic patients, I mean, there was that study by Matheson mm-hmm. uh, who looked at pregabalin um, and it didn't show any effect. Um, but, but I'm wondering if it's just because in that study, they, they just included ev- everyone, um, yeah. if it had a radiculopathy or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they included you in. So how much of mm-hmm. those are somatically referred? How much of those are those neuritis patients? Mm-hmm. Um, how much should we maybe be looking at things like um, if you're lacking a reflex or if you've got numbness in a, in a definable dermatomal pattern? I, I'd, I'd like to see that paper. Yeah, that's, that's sort of what uh, Raymond Ostello Professor Ostello, when I spoke to him, um, not referring to that paper in particular or any paper, but he said, you know, he wanted to see more um, subgrouping. There's that dangerous word of um, people who have sciatica. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not there yet. I think you, probably you and I would, when we're partly talking about it now, and we have these little subgroups in our head, like, you know, if someone has, I would think of it as like, proper neuropathic pain and some people who have mechanosensitivity and uh maybe you know i never really think in terms of neuritis but some people do and you know but i think you know there needs to be like massively more validated before they do any studies um but i hear what you're saying it's, it's that problem which I've, I've kind of got on my high horse about a lot where people are saying you know pregabalin and gabapentin don't work for um sciatica and it's like well They've never been tested on the people that I would refer. I don't really, to be honest, for for other reasons. Like I, I think it's probably rarely the best option. But the people who you think would benefit have never actually been tested. Um, and the Matheson study did do like a subgroup analysis for the people with neuropathic pain. But you know, I don't know if it was powered to be sensitive enough. Probably not. Um, I don't think it's like the biggest. The gabapentin thing is like the hill I want to die on. I don't think it's like the most important thing in the world because even though, as you said, people with shingles and post, you know, seem to benefit from this drug, they still don't benefit nearly as much as, you know, 
say someone with an ankle sprain benefits from ibuprofen is still not that great a drug but then i still i just always can't get stories out my head of people like kate charlton and jack chu who said that it's the only thing that could get them back to work and i think it would be a shame if we kind of just wrote that off um but going back to the neuropathic thing some days i just think it is semantics because as you said there's the iasp definition which you referred to in your finner paper of um, a lesion or disease in the somatosensory system um, and that there has to be like one or two conditions met so there has to be evidence of loss of function and I think preferably an MRI confirmation as well um, but that's you know as you alluded to it's just a, a definition so that people can you know um, the world's very complex as everyone knows and you just got to put stuff in buckets and that's just a definition so these researchers can do their job and they're all on the same page and it's not really for us um i mean it's useful but it's not really for us um so yeah i think um i think one one thing so I, when i wrote in the book i think i i fudged it a little bit or, or sat on the I basically said, I don't really care about neuropathic pain. I think I was in a bit of a, a mood about it where I was like, it's really interesting and the definition is there. But at the end of the day, it's like you said, you're probably thinking more in terms of actual discrete things that are going on, like neuritis and, and all that. But then I think one of the things where it's been really beneficial, actually, that I, I haven't, I didn't write about and I haven't spoken about much is that it helps people to see um and patients to see and understand what's going on so you said earlier in the conversation something about if you don't know something exists you can't see it like it, it sounds obvious but like if no one you know it's like if you hear a new you learn a new word and then you hear it like three times in the next week you, you know that feeling it's yeah. like and then if, often when patients hear about this thing neuropathic pain and then they read about it then they start their symptoms which were previously just chaos become legible and understandable to them so i think even though it has the the, the shortcomings of this idea of neuropathic pain um to, to people with pedantic minds like you and i it's not like the perfect category i think it's possibly really useful for patients to sort of make sense of what what's going on um yeah definitely just to go back to one thing I said earlier the you know i often you know, when the patients have, when the pain is below the knee and, and they've got some sensory changes and they're lacking the reflex, they, they, they just seem so barn door, don't they? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, should we be only looking at barn doors? You know, they, they like the most typical kind of patient and being a bit more selective in the first instance and, and studying it out from there. Um, but, uh, you know, so the, the thought almost seems not dead but it's like i said it temperature wise and, mm -hmm. and the reflex is gone and the, you know maybe have that l5 kind of dorsiflexion weakness um and they've got that burning in the calf and the, the toes are numb and stuff like that i'm just thinking like there is a subgroup of people that that that, that, that it is a barn door isn't it as much as you, you can be um i think the other thing is that when patients are really struggling and suffering, as you know, Tom, it's, it can be like patients can't think mm. when, when they have this kind of pain often. Um, and I think that if, if there's anything that we can do, um, I mean, you're quite limited in the clinic and you're talking to a patient, particularly over the phone as it is now, and you're quite li you're limited to help 
and it's like what we're going to do with this patient it's like well the studies say we just wait <laughs> it's like um it's little comfort to a patient when they can't think straight and um, they can't sleep and their their calf is just buzzing away it's really nasty mm. so if there's anything that that you know reduces it one or two on a pain scale um i think that's at least worthy and to continue to look at because mm. there's not many areas of our profession that things really work <laughs> is there so yeah goes back to the lumping and splitting thing i, th I think it, if we continue to go in the direction of lumping then you know we'll continue to study sciatica um and we'll continue to study very general treatments for people with vaguely nervy leg and back pain and there's a lot to be said for that because you know when you split things up too much you start to imagine things that aren't there and you get specialists in things that don't exist and you know and treatments that don't but you I'm know clineal, think, i'm going to be a clineal um, <laughs> i think shockwave for clineal nerve entrapment specialist yes yes but, I'll be impressed. but, but you yeah and and maybe that's what I'm doing in my, you know, because I'm accidentally become a sciatica specialist. Maybe I just want it to be more sort of complex than it is. But yeah, that's kind of a slight worry that I have about the direction things are going. But other than that, do you personally feel like this idea of neuropathic pain has, has helped you to understand uh, patients and help them a bit better? Yeah, maybe with the the erratic nature of the pain mm -hmm. um, and the, the kind of pain attacks and the the how sensitive nerves can become um, and uh, you know the the kind of weird and wonderful symptoms that people get they're kind of running water in the leg and um, and the burning and the cold leg and you know I think that it can be useful to say this is quite different. I wouldn't always name it as neuropathic pain mm. but i'll kind of talk about the 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 nerve impulses kind of being overly sensitive and and uh and that this is quite a particular and many patients um they've never had it before so it's kind of like they had no problem and now they've got this like worst leg pain ever mm. and it's it's strange to them um so so yeah on a, on that level i have many a conversation about that it's probably one of the easy conversations tom if yeah. i'm honest yeah the back pain clinic <laughs> yeah okay actually it is it is that's true i think that's true what about um i'm gonna take back control of my podcast now and and uh, okay. direct the next thing which is um we're still we're still basically on assessment aren't we and i wonder if maybe we should split this conversation in half but we might i wonder about um your thoughts on sensory assessment so things like um sensory maps and all that stuff didn't you do a twitter yeah. poll about this as well yeah talking yeah. of high quality evidence yeah that's the best best we've got in it. um <laughs> yeah a very selected group of people same people every time um so yeah so you know as a part of an assessment you know we we want to assess the integrity of these ab fibers ad fibers c fibers uh, which makes complete sense because they're often affected with lumbar radiculopathy so we haven't got much but i guess we're using these kind of dermatomal maps that and mm -hmm. I, I read your recent very interesting um, blog on it yeah. um so we've got that that paper by lee which is you know kind of trying to use as much information we have um about the the kind of 
overlap, particularly as you get into the lower leg. So that's probably the most useful thing we have. And I use that actually um, um, when I'm kind of thinking about sensory loss. Mm-hmm. I'll probably just focus on the AB fibers um, and only kind of light touch side of AB fibers because we could be here all day, couldn't we? Yeah. I think the AB fibers are also do pro perception and all those kind of things. So standard exam, uh, AB fibers, uh, we want to be assessing light touch. Mm-hmm. Okay. A further kind of examination beyond that might be to qualify or quantify the deficit, which is not done well, to be honest. Okay. Um, so there's yeah, a few trouble with this. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of um and ah over this and, and it's a bit sad, but I sit on an evening just jotting things in books and coming back to it and saying that doesn't really fit and I need yeah. to look at this again. So I, I wouldn't say that my approach to this is the is the best approach, but it's just kind of a, a developing way to think about the problem um, and and having that information actually be useful because mm-hmm. we do these things, but we're not really thinking about what we're doing them for mm-hmm. and how, how useful the information is. So a couple of things I would think about is when to perform an exam, how we're going to collect the information during the interview, um, how comprehensive we're going to be in real life, um, and how we qualify and quantify a deficit. So the first thing, there's no accepted consensus on when we should do an exam and in, in, uh, in people with back-related mm. leg pain. But, but some would suggest spinal trauma, mm. um, pain into the leg, so either being into the thigh or into the buttock, or when we suspect there's neurological disorder. So those kind of three main camps. In reality, I'm often using it to demonstrate normal nerve function mm-hmm. <laughs> as well as um, <laughs> trying to assess for a lack of. Mm-hmm. So I kind of use it a lot. I probably use it for most patients, a basic screen. Um, so the little line here, screen to evaluate, screen to educate. Okay, okay. I like that. Um, so so the, you can be doing it as um, as a a way to protect yourself and and to investigate their function, but you might also use it as an educational tool. Mm -hmm. Um, So with a typical radiculopathy uh, related to sensory stuff, it's usually well demarcated. So let's say numbers down the side of the the lateral calf, so like L5 kind of region. Um, It's usually well demarcated with a dermal tonal pattern, usually particularly as you move towards the foot and the lower limb. Um, so we want to allow the patient to, to give you that information. So rather than going in early on, do you have any numbness in your legs? Yeah. yeah. Um, allow a patient to volunteer that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, don't prime them, go through the, go through the problem, go through the legs uh, and, and see if the, the patient kind of volunteers that if they don't volunteer that, then obviously we're asking, do you have any patches of numbness in your leg? You probably want to qualify what we mean by numbness mm-hmm. um, because numbness can mean pain for some people. Yeah, uh, yeah. Approaching the actual exam, we want to think about how comprehensive we're going to be. Thinking about um, uh, a person's sex, a person's culture. Um, are they willing to undress mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. From, from the bomb down over? Um, what positions can they get comfortable in? Um, so, so we need to think about how we're going to actually do the exam. Now, obviously, we we would like to have a patient on a couch um, with with their trousers off, so we can we can assess the whole of the lower legs, of course, from mm. from the the kind of the groin down over, so the the L one to S one, 
mm-hmm. is, is, is what we want to be doing. But I think at the very least, we want to be looking from the knee down over. So we mm-hmm. definitely want to be mapping out the foot. Mm-hmm. Definitely want to be doing a screen of the lower leg. Um, and ideally, we want to be doing the whole of the leg as well. So the thigh as well. Uh, we want to be thinking about other peripheral territories. So I'm often thinking about, you know, those ones we mentioned earlier, um, the the parasthetic hemorrhagia that you know down the side of the of the thigh, um, obturator on the inside of the thigh, um, you know, the 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 more dominant sensory kind of peripheral territories. We want to be, and it's quite hard actually when you're kind of thinking through when you're doing the test. You have to really focus. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, right, they're telling me to you, let me take a second and think about where that might, what that might link to. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know Anina would would do right around the legs. She'd do like circular so, motions. But yeah. I really struggle with that. Yeah. I have to be thinking about your L1 when I'm <laughs> testing your L1. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I need to be thinking about your L3 over the knee when I'm testing the knee. Yeah. So I think you, you need to have a dialogue with the patient. So you're going to say, right, close your eyes. We're going to have a test and a control leg. It's mm-hmm. going to be yes, no, or maybe. Um, it needs to be standardized, not over clothing, mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, and then when it gets to the quantification, are we going to use um, a neuro tip or a neuro pen? Have you heard of those neuro pens, Tom? Uh, I don't. What are you talking about? Maybe. So a neuro pen, you can do that monofilament, so the kind of pressure, so you can quantify um, any deficit beyond the light touch assessment. Yeah, I think I know um, what you mean. I'll Google it. The, it's interesting because the other side of the pen is also for sharp appreciation. Mm. So you can do a monofilament, monofilament on one side mm-hmm. uh, as a quantification of a, like a, a light touch deficit that you've identified or, or within that kind of process that you've done. Mm. Um, or you, you, and then you can move on to like the C fibers with a sharp, if you're going to do that. Um, so the most accurate way is probably the, like, using the Von Fraze, mm-hmm. um, which is very expensive and, and often using in quantitative sensory testing. So I think, so you wouldn't obviously have access to those things. So we need to think about why we're doing it. We need to think about how we're going to position the patient. We need to have a standardized approach in our head that you probably ran through your head a number of times mm. in terms of what I'm going to say, what I would like them to say, yes, no, maybe close your eyes, test left, test right. Um, if they've got bilateral symptoms, are we going to do the chest? Are we going to use that as they kind of control yeah. every skin and, and, and do it slowly and think about their responses and take a second over each or each dermatome mm-hmm. um, and, and also thinking about um, competing peripheral mm-hmm. territory. In mm-hmm. reality, people are, are not doing that. They're doing it over clothing mm-hmm. with the hands up and down, up and down. Can you feel those? That's not an assessment of light touch. Mm-hmm. Is it? That's an assessment of light pressure. Mm-hmm. If anything. Now I did a recent poll on Twitter uh, <laughs> and I was asking what for considered to be an acceptable test for, sensory light touch mm. um, 37% of the people said that they thought it was sufficient from a report alone um, so that was mm. without an assessment mm. so it sounds a bit strange to me I might be silly but I thought it had to be like almost pseudo objective yeah. so you've got a report and then we test for it yeah 
And then, um, because someone says it's numb, but when you test it, it might not be numb. Yeah. Um, and so you're kind of taking it from a subjective to an objective. Yeah. Um, that that was always my thinking yeah. of it because it may well be that, but an account over the phone that is coming and going, you know, that's not well demarcated. How useful is yeah. is that to your understanding? Oh, that, and that that explains. So people are thinking about this phone then when, because I was thinking, well, how can that many people think that self-report is sufficient? But of course, I'm forgetting that since I moved to America, or most of practice has been over the phone. So I suppose that that's kind of had to be sufficient, hasn't it, for a lot of people? Yeah. Um, but, and I'm going to do this thing where I vaguely refer to a paper that I can't even remember the author, but um, there, there's one or two papers that show that people are pretty rubbish about knowing whether or not they have areas of numbness. And I think one was saying that even, actually people who self-reported loss of sensation actually often didn't have it. Um, so uh, that's something I'll have to kind of look into a bit more for when I write the second book. But um, I would certainly say, you know, um, obviously, if you're doing things over the phone, then you need to kind of change your standards according to what's available to you. You can't bring every single person in for a neuro exam. But I th there's something to be said for, you know, yeah, as, as you said, pseudo objective is a nice phrase because kind of alludes to the fact that it's not you know we're not getting the von frey filaments out most of the time but there's something to be said for a pseudo objective assessment and and it's interesting what's going through your head as well is this kind of trade-off between this kind of scientific assessment and something a bit different which is um an educational process you know for the patient and for you as well and um sometimes your priorities can clash there like you, you know you don't you don't want to get someone you know <clears throat> take have the trousers taken off lie them flat on the bed and start pricking them with a needle if that's going to make them completely miserable and um interesting what you said as well like what's going through your head it took me a while to to, to try and work out some discipline when i was doing my neuro exam because i what i used to do when, when i first started was i'd do the exam and if i found something weird or different then I'd try and think, okay, so what dermatome is that? Or what might, like I'd work backwards. Whereas you're mm -hmm. saying you found that if you are thinking already in your head, you know, now I am testing L2, now I am testing L3, you know, with the usual caveats that, you know, you, you know you're not exactly doing that. But if you, you're already thinking in your head, this is what I am doing at this exact yeah. moment, then that makes it much more, much easier for you to interpret the test. I used to have a nightmare, like when I'd, I'd, I'd write it up and I'd be like, so the big toe is numb uh, and the, the, in, the E version is weak. Uh, and, the, and then I'd have to try and like work backwards through my head to try and work out what that could possibly mean, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think you're probably still going to be reflecting in, in that way. Um, mm. But it, I really struggle with, um, you know, if someone is doing an exam quickly, where they're kind of just going... The brushing mm. over and the brushing on does that feel normal that feels normal i just don't think my brain can compute that yeah. level of um because you're you're waiting for the patient to give a report back aren't you? and uh -huh. they're pairing it to left and then we're comparing it to right um and that i'm simultaneously trying to think about what i'm testing uh -huh. um and it's very easy to just kind of skim over that and, and come away thinking i don't really know what i've done with that really um 
and it, yeah and people do it very differently don't they people seem to have a completely different way to do the on how to do the testing um and um so i think you just have to be standardized to yourself mm-hmm. you've got to rationalize what you're gonna what you're doing um and it's got a you've got to kind of gleam some useful information from that, even if it's just to say, well, that they were all normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, or even in your, in L5 down over, um, or maybe what was it? L3 is around the knee. So maybe I did L3 down over, um, you know, many of my patients come from different cultures and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, wearing different garments and clothing and they would find it highly uncomfortable asking to take the trousers off mm-hmm. and, and I have to weigh any discomfort of doing that with any information that I'm going to get mm-hmm. and and do it you know it might be already that I have information that this person's foot doesn't work mm-hmm. and they they have pain in the calf so really is it worth doing all that when um, it's not going to, I'm going to send them for a scan anyway. Especially when, you know, the, you referred before uh, to the evidence-based dermatome map, um, the, that kind of article that I I wrote a little while back. And um, one thing that stood out for me was that above, above the knee, um, the traditional, it's kind of a, a bit of, um, it's all up in the air basically above the knee but then the more distal you get then the more accurate the dermatomes get or the more clear they get um, so there's almost another another reason if, if you're going to say you know it, it's okay to just do below the knee or just even just do the foot um, that you're, you're probably getting dare I say it, the most important bit of the spine which is the kind of the lower lumbar spine you uh, the most commonly affected bit of the spine and the most accurate um, assessment. Um, yeah, so agree. if someone's really, if, if there's really a lot of barriers to doing a quote unquote proper full Europe. waist down neuro Europe. exam, then you're, you're probably still getting a lot of value to assessing, you know, even just the foot. I don't know if you just dis- maybe disagree, but. No, I, I completely agree. So, so I can over an hour in about, should I just assess the foot really well? Mm-hmm. actually assess a foot really well have a good appreciation of those peripheral territories as well as those dermatomal maps um i think that the if the dermatomes uh, i don't know if there's any evidence of this but if they're funneling into a smaller part of your body and it's the distal end of your body then it makes sense that they're going to be a bit more accurate mm-hmm. than than when they are further up um and uh yeah, and a lot of patients. I mean, obviously, if we think scientific, it's in the lower, it's low, below the knee anyway. Mm, so yeah, L five that stripped down the calf and and the the top of the foot and, and the sole of the foot. Um, I think you can sensibly gleam a lot of good information from just doing those things, and that's readily done, isn't it? You can just get a patient to move their trouser leg up and mm-hmm. um, and 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 take your time on it. Um, you know, so, so yeah, so that kind of combats a lot of that overlap, doesn't it? That you have higher up um, because our bodies don't need to conform to anything that's convenient for us. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I often think is, why is it so hard? And I'm thinking, well, there's no one's deciding yeah, yeah. Um, that this needs to be easy for me. <laughs> but, um, so, so, yeah, so um, it's a developing kind of quandary 
Um, but that's kind of where I kind mm. of landing on it currently. Is there anything else? Because um, and I think I'd like to move on to talk about um, approaching activity, exercise, general treatment. But is there anything else you feel like we've missed out when, well, there's a lot we've missed out, but is there anything, any other burning issues about assessment that you wanted to talk about? Uh, well, we could probably do a separate session on that, couldn't we, Tom? Yeah. On yeah, just neurological exam, really, mm -hmm. couldn't we? We could do a talk for three hours on that. Um, and I, I didn't really want to have to squeeze everything in. So, mm -hmm. so the answer yeah. would be no. I think that we need to be thinking about other competing things like diabetic neuropathy which obviously often present in the foot mm. <laughs> just to make it harder for ourselves mm -hmm. um and uh, martin neuroma and and uh, some other competing peripheral things mm -hmm. but it, again it's just a piece of information isn't it that we can mm -hmm. wait to to everything else so what do you think about talking about treatment now it's completely up to you like it's fairly late there i know um do you want to what's more convenient do you want to talk again another day another week another month or do you want to crack on now let's, let's just crack on tom yeah i'm happy to go absolutely. if you are yeah, you yeah absolutely um so this is yeah this is where i'm really interested um in, in particular about just broadly how would you like approach activity and exercise for people like for people with sciatica well i think you might be a bit disappointed with my with my answer, Tom, after that after that intro, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not particularly biased in any direction, Tom. Mm -hmm. If I'm honest, when it comes to exercise, I, I'm not overly insistent the folk have to do exercise um, mm -hmm. on an individual basis. I would like to keep people doing exercise if they value it and they were doing it previously. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd I'd maybe recommend a exercise program if it was if it came up naturally uh, that kind of stepped approach to management side to going from wait and see to medicines to rehab or, or some kind of support from a physiotherapist so if that was something that was expressed by the patient um i'd, I'd be more than happy to refer with physio if it just be to support them or to um or to to keep them moving or to look at some specific rehab uh, if they felt it was of value what that looks like, I'm, I'm, I'm not really fussed. I'd rather just keep people moving. I know there's a lot of that. The kind of if you have mechanical sensitivity, if you have a straight leg raise, then maybe you should do that kind of speak. I, I don't know if I buy into that particularly, but mm -hmm. um, but that's just another way to exercise, and that might mm -hmm. be some buy-in for the for the patient. Um, but keeping things simple, preference. What's the patient understanding? do definitely feel we need to be, you know, using the word sensitivity. They don't have any loss of function. You know, we want to say these things are safe to do um, and, and give them reassurance. Um, but equally that it's okay to back off, <laughs> you yeah. know, that you don't have to be, uh, you know, I did that 10 sciatica facts. Mm -hmm. And I was very specific to keep that big. I don't mm -hmm. want to be, I don't want people to feel like they have to do exercise if, if it's giving them a lot of pain mm -hmm. um, or, or if there is a big rebuttal afterwards, it might be that we need to pull them back a bit. So when we need to expose someone or when we need to move them back, I think that's probably a bigger discussion around that when it comes to persistency of symptoms and persistency of back pain and developing 
currently, just in my own time, because I'm a bit boring, um, uh, a bit of a schematic of, you know, kind of a reasoning process of when to expose and when to protect and mm. um, when to lean into something and when to, so a little bit that kind of CFT mm. uh, kind of approach. That, so you could map that onto sciatica, but I think I'd probably keep it a bit more simple. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you've got a new problem, I would say, what well, what feels good for you? Um, and um, and if someone's kind of saying, I want to keep moving, I'd say, okay, it's more than safe. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to pull back if, if it's a bit too much. Mm-hmm. And that's as, I think that's consistent with the research. The research doesn't really give us too many guiding lights mm-hmm. on that, Tom. Yeah, I think that that's um, <clears throat> sort of what quite similar to me. I think um, as you as you said, the, at the end of the day, the the biggest factors are you know uh, not the type of exercise that's done, but you know whether it's done, whether it's right for that person. Um, you know how much they're doing too much too little for these very very broad factors um which is kind of the same for anything in life isn't it it's like it doesn't matter what diet you do you know it's just are you eating too many calories you know it doesn't matter um or what exercises you do in that you do in the gym really as long as you get in there and um so it shouldn't be too surprising and i think that the thing that i'm kind of always thinking to myself is well is it is it fair to apply that um, to sciatica, or are there like particular things about sciatica where there's important aspects of exercise or important unique features for people with sciatica? And you alluded to one of them, which is like neurodynamic dynamic type exercises. So there's like a line of thinking, which is that if someone has like mechanosensitive nerves, so if their nerves don't like being stretched and moved, but they don't have like proper raging neuropathic pain if they're in that kind of bracket where they've basically got sore nerves then they would probably do well for some specific neurodynamic exercises so i would usually you know think of that as basically in the slump test position and then and then moving ankles and we're joined by adam's cat uh it's the most beautiful cat ever i'm not a cat person but what what type of cat is that She's a Bengal, a Bengal. Yeah. I know what the photo is going to be to go with the, sorry, Adam, I know you like your selfies, but I'm going to use a photo. (laughs) It's a descendant of a, I think it's an Asian leopard cat. So they kind of bred, I think she's like five descendants removed or something like that um, from from an Asian leopard cat. So Mm. she's got all of the markings of a leopard cat, but, mm-hmm. um, but she's domesticated. Mm. So she, she looks like, she looks exotic and it's kind of partly true, but not really. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's an amazing cat. She, she's, yeah, she's active. Yeah. So read that as you will. <laughs> <laughs> Very active, running, running everywhere. But, um, yeah. But when it, <laughs> anyway, when it comes to oh, like, yeah, about, yeah. the, but I don't I don't want to get I'm hoping to talk to more people about this because one of my big paranoid things is that I'm I'm a lumper like uh, you know I'm, I'm absolutely happy to go with generalities and um but I'm worried I'll miss anything important that's specific so I need to talk to more people but my thing with the neurodynamics is that at the end of the day it's not that more difficult than people just have to try them and see if they work 
Um, and if they do, then that's fantastic. Like Kate Charlton, she, you know, she found they were, they were incredible for her. And if they don't, then just leave them. I don't think there's much yeah, so, more. Yeah, so it's just testing and trying, isn't it? And that's, again, just that individual patient that you're seeing and, and give things a go on what might be. Just to give you an example, Tom, so when I, when I had it, um, so I, I've had it maybe twice, I think, which is that first instance I mentioned, but not so long ago, I was putting on Twitter again. Um, and um, I would specifically go out for a walk every day uh, and I was still at the gym. Interestingly, the gym made me feel better. Mm. So I was squatting mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. leg pain and I felt better doing that than I did um, in the morning time and just sitting. Sitting mm-hmm. was really painful. Squatting felt great. Um, so, and the other thing is that when I was walking every day, pain off at all, actually. But I kind of feel that because I kept doing that, I was no mm-hmm. worse from doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I kept doing that, that that was maybe a part of my recovery in the end kind of thing that I kept moving nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, maybe there's something there in, in saying, do you feel good doing something? Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. sounds a bit obvious, doesn't it? Leaning into things that feel good. Mm. Um, <laughs> prize goes to Adam. Um, but equally, the fact that I just had a mentality that I wanted to be a good patient and and, um, and I wanted I didn't want it to be chronic and I kept moving and it was uncomfortable. I was mm. uncomfortable walking um, and I was wincy, um, but but I kept moving and I did that every day and 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 actually my problem fully resolved. So mm-hmm. was that a part of that? I, I don't know, but maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I kept going to the gym as well. I I adapted what I was doing, so I think I deadlifted off some off pins for a bit and squatted like above parallel, and because I the gym made me feel better until like a few hours afterwards, and then it would feel much worse if I'd been doing like if I'd been squatting deep or deadlifting from the floor. But yeah. then when I made some adjustments there, then I kind of got on top of it and found that sweet spot, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that that's what rehab is, isn't it? So for, mm-hmm. for me, it's it's individualized care and 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 um, and that's that's physiotherapy at its best, I think, from that perspective, because you're not mm-hmm. just doing the exercise. You're you're going along for the journey aren't you? and mm-hmm. you experiment and you try new things out and you encourage them to keep moving. So if if you're instrumental to the recovery, maybe not. But but, uh, you know, I think that that's when we kind of uh, that's where we're best used i think mm-hmm. and you you put yourself down a bit by saying like what you were saying was obvious but in in my experience it's not always obvious so physiotherapists have their own bias about what hurts people with leg pain like we there tends to be like an assumption and i, I still just feels like it should hurt to bend down but for a lot of people it doesn't um and it actually is much more painful to extend um and patients of course have their own um, biases probably in the same direction um, but often people just don't think they shouldn't move at all and um, I always think of um, I think it was I think it's this is something Tina uh, Price said was that um, one of the best things that she got was when Matt just helped her to work out a comfortable seated position because um, I suppose there's all sorts of psychological things going on which mean you don't want to experiment with certain things or you feel like you Maybe even if something feels good, you're not supposed to do it. Like, well, it feels nice to sit flexed, but I'm not supposed to do that, am I? Um, so I think there's a lot 
to that feels obvious after the fact but and you've got to actually unlock it either your own biases or the patient's assumptions and once you've unlocked them it feels obvious but it needs to be done and there's a lot of strides you can make doing that stuff yeah really well put yeah so that that's we we figured it out tom <laughs> you know just pack up and move on now <laughs> uh yeah so it's a, yeah so keeping it keeping it simple and 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 doing what works for the patient is uh it, it, it seems a bit nebulous, that idea, doesn't it? It's like, well, you're not giving me any specifics there, but you kind of know when you do it kind of thing. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. What about the, um, you mentioned the um, protect or expose sort of thing. That, mm. that, that um, So I have a little slide that I show sometimes that is no more complicated than that. It's... it's um, so behind the as well as that kind of like patient the clinician facing reasoning thing that i'm developing we're also developing um a patient facing rehab booklet um and uh, i think um with tom uh he's gonna he's gonna kill me for the current member his surname um chap called tom off twitter not tom flanagan um, tom flanagan yes so he's mm. gonna he's given a hand with it Mm -hmm. um and and really a kind of um where we go through some of these themes so, so it's kind of like exercise therapy to desensitize pain versus like re-enable people and function and stuff but put it in a way that makes it a bit more explicit um and i think that some of these ideas around that we use we have to kind of think about how we might adapt that mm -hmm. idea for a patient um so the idea is so exposure, I think it comes from the psychological kind of literature, just mm -hmm. the exposure therapies, exposing Quite a specific things. meaning there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, so, so you're exposing to things that you're fearful or avoidant of. Now, my interpretation of that is that um, rather than thinking about they're scared of it, they're just avoiding mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and if you're avoiding it, um, can we explore that? And if we're going to use therapy that's a an exposure type approach um and there's different elements of exposure generally i suppose it might be or it might be graded activity so exposure to bending and flexing or avoided things um and then graded activity might be just the, the i'm not scared of bending um it hurts a bit i'm not scared of it i do it and i'm not moving mm -hmm. differently but actually i just want to gradingly get you to do that mm -hmm. over and over again and then I'm going to increase how much we're doing it. Now, that's graded activity. Um, it happens to be specifically to bending, but it could be to walking. So, so or it could be to the gym. Um, so within, let's call it exercise for therapy, um, to desensitize, you, you would either be exposing or gradingly doing activity. Now, the context of that will be different for each person because bending could be, Bending could be exposure therapy, but it also could be graded activity. Mm -hmm. um, and then beyond that, we're talking about re-enablement. I can't climb the stairs. We need to get you stronger and fitter. The third part of that, I'm giving all my pearls away <laughs> and start going into the booklet. Is someone's going to nick this now? Um, it's um, exercise for health. So mm -hmm. beyond the the clinic, you know, things like uh, sarcopenia and osteopenia and and um, and maybe prevention of pain. Mm. That third level is, well, you're going to brush your teeth every day, so are you maybe going to go to the gym 
mm-hmm. a bit more often, like, mm-hmm. even though your problem's gone. So exercise for health. So exercise for therapy, exercise for re-enablement, mm-hmm. and then exercise for health. Mm-hmm. So that's that, that we're kind of working on. Um, the first one would encapsulate everything, exposure and, and rehab, that CFT stuff, really. Um, mm-hmm. So you could apply that to someone's sciatica, uh, I, I guess. I, and you, you probably use either exposure or graded activity with them, wouldn't you? Um, I suppose ex- mechanosensitivity exercise is a, if when you test it, it hurts, and they're like, I won't be doing that anymore. That might be a type of exposure, might it? Mm-hmm. Um, but but equally, they're like, eh, it feels all right. They go, we're just going to do shed loads of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That could be graded activity. It might mm-hmm. sound semantics, but it's how I'm starting to think about divvying up the things. Because I, I don't think that, so when it comes to avoidance behavior, I don't think that um, it, it seems to be in the literature that this idea that everyone's scared to move mm-hmm. might just not want to hurt mm-hmm. <laughs> when yeah. we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be like explicitly or implicitly, I'm not really scared to do it, but I'm avoiding it. Yes, I'm mm-hmm. avoiding it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm avoiding it because it hurts. Um, and so it might be uh, more about just looking at what they're avoiding mm-hmm. to oppose uh, trying to save the scared or not. Um, and and uh, and that's what I would do with back patients really is thinking about, do I need to expose them to something or, or do more of something? Um, uh, or do I need to um, back away from things? And that's obviously mm-hmm. the, the kind of protect side of that. I suppose mm-hmm. that's all things like pacing and and um, uh, and kind of having more rest and, and maybe just not doing something for a while. I had a, a little while ago, I had hip pain. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of in, in my buttock. And for a while, this is when I was training again. Um, I was just doing shed loads of stretches, like mm-hmm. the piriform stretches. And mm-hmm. it just hurt all the time. And I was like, mm-hmm. I, I told I have to form roll and I need to stretch and I did all these things. And it just hurt more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, I just said, I'm not, I'm just... <laughs> and, it, and funnily enough, it went. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes we need to stop poking the bear, don't we? Mm-hmm. And just to say, just have to leave that alone for a bit. Mm-hmm. And that might be that subgroup of protect versus mm. expose we're very we're, we're not that comfortable as physiotherapists telling people to do less of something mm. or, or maybe that you don't do any of these novel exercises you just back away and just go for a walk yeah yeah um and and look at some other kind of biopsychosocial things and sleep yeah. one of it yeah. um yeah i, don't I, know if I have a question now sorry mate i don't know if i answered your question there Thomas. no you did absolutely and i think um uh what was I going to say? The yeah, I think it, you know you mentioned poking the bear, and we credit Greg Lehman for that. And I think it, it's um, it's helpful to say these things because um, I think um, I like your take on it that you've come up with with Tom. It's like sort of um, a slightly different sort of angle of looking at some familiar concepts, um, and it's very very useful to hear people apply this thing to sciatica or to nerve pain because there's always the thought in the back of people's mind that when someone has like a very specific kind of condition then they need a very specific kind of exercise and I think there's that thing with with sciatica which is like yeah maybe we do need to to still be specific about things and as we've said there is definitely a place for that 
but the same the same principles apply, don't they? Um, let's move. Let, maybe finish with a little case study. I've got a little case study for you. Maybe pick up on some of the issues, or maybe some new issues. Um, so if I give you some information, you let us know what you think. How's that? Yep, sounds grand. Um, so we've got a lady called. Uh, I'm going to call her. Um, I'm going to call her Trish um, because I think most of my patients in when I was in Newcastle were called Trish. Uh, Trish is a 56-year-old post-menopausal lady. Uh, she smokes, she's a moderate drinker, and she doesn't exercise. Uh, her past medical history includes heart disease, diabetes, type 2, and depression. Uh, she's had a decompression. Uh, with revision five years ago. So she had a left-sided painful radiculopathy. It was partly successful, uh, but the pain came back not long after the second operation. The surgeon says, that's your lot, no more, no more operations. So now she has back pain, um, buttock pain, and patchy pain into both her legs, both legs. Currently taken pregabalin, cocodamol, um, She's got long-term numbness in the outside of her calf, uh, tender to light touch throughout her back's buttock and legs, limited back movements in all directions, but power and reflexes are normal. Um, on pelvic x-ray, um, she's got moderate OA. Um, when we test her, sort of stretch out her nerves, kind of equivocal, mechanosensitivity testing, vascular testing was normal. On the MRI, scar tissue noted disc bulging with recess narrowing throughout, but with no definitive compression. Had two consecutive nerve root blocks six months ago with only small improvements. Her expectation is further injections, feels her back uh, needs fixing. So I don't know if there's anything you want to pick up on that. I think it's a pretty standard, certainly for you, the people you tend to see, pretty standard story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, complex story but um fairly standard or maybe mm. unfortunately um we could maybe talk about that i'll, I'll split them four things and i'll mm. split them split them up um as you were so i took some notes as you you were kind of talking through that tom um so the first thing is this idea of diagnostic certainty or, or indeed uncertainty second thing would be the effectiveness and safety of nerve root blocks the third thing you know what's how does the patient perceive a problem and um and the, the fourth thing would be any opportunity for health modification so the first thing diagnostic uncertainty we'll, we'll, we'll start there so so we know that as as you will know tom um that when we start to get beyond a year with 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 ridiculous pain becomes a little bit um unclear how people are going to get on um, so that the literature seems to look, go to a year and, and we know that there's a small group of people continue to have pain well after the year. And this includes Barbara. It's a bit more challenging. I think she's had recurrent problems and she's had so-called definitive treatments, clearly not definitive. Um, so we can't really afford any reassuring information on prognosis. I, I'm not so sure. Mm. Um, her imaging's kind of equivocal. And, and an interest in this is very common um, that the you've got kind of uniform narrowing or mm. um, some degree of occlusion throughout, but it, it's kind of it's not really giving you any clear information. 
it, so it's plausible that that she has some neuritis and ongoing uh, ectopic kind of stuff going on. Um, but the treatment of the tissues thus far has been quite futile. Uh, her examination, you know, often have a lot of allodynia, widespread sensitivity, um, often no new radiculopathy. I don't think um, Trish had a new radiculopathy. Mm -hmm. Hips, you know, often equivocal, particularly when we look at the X-ray. Last thing I would say is she has a lot of coexisting health problems. So we know mm -hmm. that there's a relationship. Some would argue that it's consequential rather than influencing the problem but we know there's a relationship between persistent pain and poor health of be a trigger an ongoing influence or a consequence so it's kind of diagnostic label idea um you know using tissue mechanisms and there's an issue around that quite unhelpful mm -hmm. or, or or not that useful mm -hmm. um so quite unclear and and maybe not that useful to direct what we're going to do or what we're going to say. Um, effectiveness of nerve root blocks. So um, they're probably help in the short term and, and the research, if it be foraminally or translaminal or cordially. Um, mm. And uh, there's that study from last year. I think it was Liviera uh, 2020. Yeah. Um, so the Cochrane one. The Cochrane one, yeah. Mm. Um, and that, that seemed to... Um, show that there was some short-term results. We know it's supported by NICE guidelines. We know mm -hmm. that the national um, north of east back pain pathway that I use say that we should be using it in short, <laughs> in short-term severe uncontrolled leg pain. Yeah. So it, it, in this kind of case, really, she's had injections before. They've not worked. She's kind of fell off a cliff when it comes to the guidance. Mm -hmm. so the guidance yeah. isn't really giving us any clue to as we should say it. Um, and, and often, uh, let's let's say that Trisha said that she doesn't want an operation anyway. Mm, mm. Um, and the surgeon have kind of wiped the hands. So we're, we're quite limited, really, in in in, in um, nerve root blocks. But they, they do seem to be safe. Uh, I, I think that's the first, the main thing to say. So they, no matter how we do it. So there's a large retrospective study by Stalkup in 2016. Uh, and they they found that they looked at like two thousand patients, and and it, I think it was only a hundred of them had mild complications, lightheadedness and facial mm -hmm. flushing, um, and they didn't report any serious kind of health problems. But they are out there, and there mm -hmm. are cases on it. So like things like nerve injury and paralysis and infections and hematomas and dural punctures. So um, complications do happen. So. Um, so we've got the effectiveness side probably not going to work for, for Trish. Um, and then we've got the safety element of, well, it is pretty safe in the most, but not completely inert. They, you know, they are out there. Um, there is a question of the study by, I can't say the name, Kerry Zudis in 2018. So there might be an issue like bone density, mm. uh, injecting steroid around bones. Um, and this lady is postmenopausal. So I think it's worth, you know, I'll probably have a discussion about is is this going to be good for your bones doing mm -hmm. repeated injections? You know, the 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 uh, I think there's a case for that. Next thing, patient understanding, what do they understand about the problem? Using a common sense model, seeing the, the body like a machine, it makes no makes complete sense. Yeah, they're fixing, yeah. yeah, they're they're wanting fixing and and um and they we're kind of putting the focus on the imaging. 
And then the last thing would be about the opportunity. You know, there's a number of health things there that smoking status, uh, a view on a pain or activity levels. Um, and, you know, all these things are probably open for change. Um, but uh, and we could maybe support a person like Trish with that. But the question really is, is do the systems allow that to happen? Yeah. Um, and, and this is quite a common kind of case that, that we see where we're actually not we're more of an advocate than an enabler. Hmm. We're probably not meeting your expectation. Hmm. Um, and But actually, this is an important conversation that we need to have. Hmm. That actually not probably going to be able to fix your problem. Injections maybe are not going to be useful. Um, and there's an argument that said, do we even offer it? You know, hmm. and, and you could talk about shared decision making, uh, of course. But do we want to end up back here again? Are we going to mm. bust a bone? Um, you know, those those kind of things. So it's not inert. So I think it's just as much a, a kind of ethical discussion, a moral discussion, as it is a kind of clinical quandary, because um, this is very common. This, is, this, this could be my uh, few patients today mm-hmm. kind of thing where we've got this uh, complex kind of problem. Mm. So, so yeah, so we need to have some conversation. We need to communicate well. We need to assess. Uh, we need to value Trisha's uh, beliefs and, and her views on the problem. But we also need to be thinking about, you know, the, how, how are we going to come away? Are we just going to move to a further injection? Um, or, or are we going to look at some other modifiable life things? It, which, it can be tough, that, Tom. I, 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 if I say that, I'm always successful. Mm. Um, trying to have a slightly different conversation uh, with a patient who's kind of been through the pathway a number of times. Yeah. And um, I, I would assume that often you're the first time that they've had that conversation as well. Yeah. I think the GP often, um, you know, I think that if you've got limited time and you've seen GP will often try to have a conversation, but I think you need time. Yeah. Actually you need time to let this, settle in you need to assess things you know you've people have to be heard and and i think that sometimes you you need a good amount of time to have a conversation like this even Mm -hmm. if it's over a number of sessions Mm, absolutely interesting stuff thanks adam um yeah i really enjoyed that conversation thanks mate all right i enjoyed it too sort of agreed a bit too much don't we you and i (laughs) Yeah, maybe we're just right. (laughs) Maybe we were just correct on all things.